Welcome to Developing Organizations, my podcast about how to grow and fix the human organizations we all belong to so they can change the world. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Goodwin, President and CEO of Turning West, a national organization development and leadership consulting firm based here in the greater Los Angeles area. In the episodes of this podcast, I'm going to invite you along to follow along with me on my career-long quest to figure out how to fix the human organizations we create so we can make this a better world. Throughout my whole career, I've been frustrated by organizations that, well, a little bit, to be honest, like my cat. She likes to sleep in the light in the windowsill and not quite reach her full potential. I find that's true of many organizations as well, that just are underperformed, sometimes downright even dysfunctional. That frustrates me. Imagine if those organizations were optimized and harmonized to reach their total truest possible impact. Imagine the difference that can make in the world. So I decided to start this podcast. I chose the title Developing Organizations because for me it has two potential meanings. I mean to use the word developing both as a verb and as an adjective. As a verb, you'll get to see organizations that are in development. As a verb, you'll get to learn how to develop organizations, how to help them grow to their fullest potential, to harmonize and mobilize and and unite people so that we can create a society, a culture that really is impacting the world for the better. And we'll use this word, developing, as an adjective. You'll get to see organizations that are on the process of development, that are in process of becoming what they truly can be in order that they can change the world. That's my intent anyways. One of the joys of my career as an organization development consultant is I regularly get to engage in fascinating conversations with experienced leaders from all walks of life, from all industries and sectors. So I decided to create this podcast to kind of capture a little bit of that magic and bottle it up so you can listen in on these conversations. And the conversations I get to have routinely in my work as a consultant, I get to learn from my guests and my clients, and hopefully they get to learn from me. And by listening in, I hope you'll get to learn along with us. So I want to give you a window seat that allows you to peek into these guests' relatable challenges and the struggles they face as they wrestle with leading companies and nonprofits, faith-based groups, government entities, and more. We're going to really dive deep into human culture and how those cultures are formed and how they get reformed. We're going to wrestle with the kind of characteristics that they take on when culture goes awry. To do that, we're going to dive deep into the fields of sociology and anthropology, psychology, even theology. So we try to figure out what makes people tick. We're going to learn directly from leaders in the trenches and try to see if we can apply some of those lessons that they have learned as they lead the organizations through the challenges and struggles of everyday work. This is my quest. I hope you'll join me as we try to figure out what motivates people and how does a leader manage others? What's leadership anyways and how do I master it and how do I create more and better leaders around me? How can we build world-class teams and fix those teams that are underperforming? And what do you do as a leader when you've found yourself trying to lead a dysfunctional organizational culture 
Back to Health. These are some of the topics that fascinate me, and I hope to invite you along as I engage in conversations with leaders who are wrestling with these same questions. So my guest today for this second episode of Season 1 is Bern Galvin. You'll quickly note from Bern's accent that Bern is Australian. I met Bern through a consultation some years ago as we, he, were, he was a consultant on the financial side and I was a consultant brought in on the board development side to help the Center for the Partially Sighted see if it couldn't turn itself around before it died. Bern has a law degree and an accounting background from Australia and he came to this country and he quickly put those skills to use tackling this question of turnarounds both in the for-profit and in the non-profit realm. Presently, Byrne is serving as CFO of Beacon House, one of my current clients here at Turning West. Beacon House is an alcohol and chemical dependency treatment program for men who have been homeless, incarcerated, who failed out of 13, 14 different ChemDEP programs before. Beacon House has a tremendous track record and a potential to really have even greater impact in the world but presently is having a bit of struggle trying to figure out how to sort through its culture so it can optimize its performance. So listen in with me. As Bern and I have a conversation about how to build an, a business operation inside a nonprofit that truly can drive the impact that an organization hopes to have. Good. Welcome. Well, my guest today is uh, Bern Galvin. Uh, Bern's one of the guys that one of the few guys I know that maybe have done more turnarounds uh, than I have. <laughs> and in fact, uh, you and I got to know each other, Byrne, for where was it? The Center for the Partially Sighted. Center for the Partially Sighted up in Culver City. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we were trying to rescue that organization. And unfortunately, they probably brought both of us in a little too late, as I recall. Yeah, it was. Um, unfortunately, it was dead before we got there. We, we got it onto life support. And in fact, we did the first. Uh, I don't know if you remember this now, yeah. it's a few years ago, we did the very first in the country uh, out-of-court uh, moratorium creditors workout. That was one of those fascinating things you yeah. ever taught me is how to do that. Explain yeah. a little bit about that to our listeners. What well, that basically, like. uh, basically in the, mainly in California, but in some other states, it's not well known because bankruptcy attorneys don't promote it because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't pay them a lot. Uh, but it, it keeps most of the money where it should be with the debtor uh-huh. uh, to to maximise his chance of actually making a successful turnaround. Right, right. Uh, so it avoids, it, it basically mimics Chapter 11, except that you don't file Chapter 11. Okay? Oh. So it, the, the, the whole process mimics Chapter 11, except you don't file Chapter 11. In Chapter 11, the court's the trustee in um, an out-of-court uh, moratorium workout there's an organization called the CMA, Credit Managers Association, uh-huh. that acts as the trustee and does it much less expensively than the court and much more flexibly. So things can happen much faster, uh, much less expensively, giving the debtor a much better chance of successfully coming out of Chapter 11 or coming out of... The, the, to reorganize the finances. To reorganize yes. successfully and right. getting back to profitability. right. And uh, I discovered that process uh, back in the early 90s and did one, a fairly large one, very successfully. Had 150 
employees, predominantly um, predominantly Hispanic employees in a manufacturing environment. Uh-huh. Um, and when I got there, the odds of them ever getting out of the turnaround, ever getting out, being able to successfully turn around were probably about 5%. That low, huh? It was extraordinarily low. And we managed through luck and, and, and you know, learning fast sure. on the fly, we managed to turn the whole thing around and, and turn that thing into an incredibly profitable business. So I was so interested in that. I became very interested in that. And I wondered, of course, why nobody knew about this. Most most attorneys have no idea about it. I even, had never heard it until you taught me how. Even bankrupts, even a lot of bankruptcy attorneys haven't heard of it. Right. And uh, but of course, I quickly realised the reason they hadn't heard of it, and the ones that had heard of it, poo-pooed it, was that you know the, the bankruptcy attorneys make no money at doing it at all. Oh, sure. And, um, Not a popular thing. So it just wasn't popular. But I ended up doing with an attorney who's unfortunately since died, uh, a Jewish guy called, uh, called uh, Cliff Hogan up in, um, up in San Fernando Valley. Uh-huh. I worked with him. We ended up, he felt the same way about it as I did, that data companies should get, you know, the opportunity to get themselves turned around and come out of this successfully. So we ended up doing one after another of these, just, I mean, Fascinating. There was a he, he marketed it all. I didn't do any of that, but I would go in and as uh, go in as uh, the CEO of the data uh-huh. and work and put him into that process and work him through it with working with him and and several other groups of attorneys who were interested in this and, and the CMA and we we did a, we did a ton of these very quickly and almost all of them were successful. That's great. Yeah. I remember we had this conversation back then when we were working together those, in those days. You know, here are, here's this nonprofit trying to do this good in the world, trying to have this impact, but it's got, himself, it's got itself sideways, probably because it didn't run itself like a good business. Right. Right. And, and, and if, we can, if we can get them through this turnaround, both on the financial side and on the governance and the, the operations side, we could get it back doing good work again. But if we had to blow this thing up and start from scratch, well, it takes one, it takes too long, and it takes too much more money. We're, we're far better off if we could save a bunch of these if we can get to them in time. Wouldn't you right. agree? Yeah, the key is getting in there early enough. Unfortunately, human nature being what it is, people don't ask for help until... Isn't that true? It's often... You know, the 11th hour. Yeah, and it's deny, deny, deny. We'll be fine and we'll be all yeah. right. And that's kind of what we face there. Yeah. And, well, there's know. an even bigger problem. There's, a, there's kind of an institutional problem with nonprofits as well because the way the FASBs work with nonprofit financial disclosure. And explain FASBs as far as listeners FASBs who don't know. Uh, financial Accounting Standard Board's uh, ways of, ways of uh, recognizing revenue and that. Right, right. Um, the, the rules, the rules that govern the way accountants uh, do their financial statements. The FASBs uh, are a little unfortunate when it comes to nonprofits, uh, because, for instance, one of the big problems is, um, or one of the problems that I've seen, and, and was actually the case at the uh, Centre for the Partially Cited, was um, they had they'd been in a long downhill run in terms of financial performance yes. over 10 or 12 years. and uh, But a couple of years before the end, uh, 
someone died and left them a big chunk of money. Oh, I've seen this before. I and know the, where you're and going. Of course, yep. uh, and under the FASBs that govern nonprofits, that money can just get included in regular income without a separate disclosure note. Okay. So it inflated the picture that they had of themselves, and yeah. they thought they were financially healthier than they really were. Exactly. So huh. the board got the financials. What should have happened was it should have been pointed out very clearly that this stroke of luck from the from the debtor's point of view, from uh-huh. the from the Centre for Pedagogy's point of view, was really just a stroke of luck. Yes. And nothing else, and therefore it should have been recorded separately with regular ongoing financial trends so as not to obfuscate the otherwise obvious financial trend. Yeah. That's what happened to them. So that gave them another, another several years of life, and they continued to do nothing about the problem. Yeah. They didn't know any better. They didn't know any better. Right. Yeah. I, one of the things I, I've loved about working alongside you, and we've worked a couple of projects uh, alongside each other since then, um, is the way that you kind of come in and help the operations of the organization really get on a, a more business-like track. Say a little bit more about what that means and what that looks like from your perspective. Well, uh, my perspective on, on turnaround is that there's a fairly specific agenda of things that need to occur if you're going to have much chance of successfully turning something around. The first thing you need to do is get in there in what I would call the crisis stage. And what you need to do there is, before you even start to get into the underlying operations, you need to create running room or runway, financial runway. Right. So how do you create, create financial runway? You've got to go to the company's bankers, typically, and you've got to restructure the balance sheet to give them, in one form or another, either through the owners or through their secured lenders, uh-huh. to give them enough cash to lengthen the runway to, you know, six to 12 months, hopefully, hopefully more if you can get it. And once you get the runway, then you can move to step two, which is starting to dig into the efficiencies or inefficiencies of the underlying operations. I see. And, yeah. Uh, but if you don't have the runway, not much use getting into the second part because you're not going to get the time to make any real effective changes. Right. It's, it's like akin to a body bleeding out before you can get uh, the surgery done, right? right. I mean, right. you've you got to have that cash flow running. And right. uh, I've got one uh, client I'm talking to up north uh, right now that's just – they're running out of cash. Their accounts receivable is great. You look at their accounts receivable, and but it's not coming in in a kind of a way in which would get them, and they got to restructure the whole thing, but right. it can be quite a mess. Right, yeah. And, and in my experience, I'm sure you've, you'd share this, that nonprofits sometimes don't always have the financial acumen to forecast very well. Yes, yeah, uh, nonprofits, I, I'd say it even more forcefully, I'd say they typically don't have the financial uh, horsepower in-house to do things in such a way that um, the problems are highlighted. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, they're aided by that in relation to the way the FASBs are written. Right, right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that, that, um, that, that tends to be problematic. It's changing, though. Oh, it is? I think it's changing. I mean, I, I think... Well, I think today... <clears throat> Nonprofits, my understanding is nonprofits make up about 
at least in California, they make up about 18% of the economy. It's a fairly big number. It's a lot. And so, I mean, that's, you know, if you looked at a comparison with industries, mm-hmm. um, the medical industry makes up about 18% of our, of our economy today. Oh, a, I wasn't aware of that statistic. That's a big industry. That is. It's big huge. Industry. So nonprofits are, are a big yeah. industry. Well, and we have a, quite a concentration of nonprofits here in L.A. County. I, I think I did the math recently. There's one nonprofit for every 289 people in this county. Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's, we, it's pretty dense. Yeah, and, yeah. and so what I always say to them is, you know, there's a lot of competition for a donor dollar. And you've got to look like you're a well-run organization, operation. And because especially the wealthiest donors, they know how to read a financial sheet. Right. Yeah. And, and they, can, they can smell a duck from, you know, an eagle. Right. And, and so if you don't look like you got your stuff, to, if you don't have your stuff together, you're not likely to get those larger donations that you really need. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, and my particular interest, as I've mentioned to you previously, is I'm interested in working with non- nonprofits so that they effectively operate like regular businesses. Yes. And in fact, I don't even like the term nonprofit because. It's, it has this connotation that you don't have to make a profit to stay in business. Yeah. Well, the reality is if a non-profit isn't profitable, it ain't going to be in business for long. We always use that little linguistic semantics, revenue positive, but right. it's the same thing as being profitable, right? You have to, right. You, at the end of the day, you have to take in a little bit more money than you spend out. Right. It, what I object to the term non-profit about is most people, they're, they're do-gooders, we're do-gooders. We all want to do good in the world, Right. So we, we want to give everything away, but at the end of the day, you've got, to, you've got to really have enough revenue coming in. You have to have some P&L awareness. Yeah, doing good's fine, but you've also got to have the discipline to you know, run That's an organization nice in a workmanlike fashion. And if you don't do that, then uh, you know, good intentions are going to be just that. They really are. They really are. We, we've seen in our work at Turning West a, a number of, especially the social service organizations and nonprofits, where I, I contend that the, the program level managers need at least some profit and loss awareness. They need at least to know that, that the services they're producing, they're taking in a little bit more money for those services than they're producing. Right. Um, and I, I know you've seen this too, and we've got a number of our clients are sometimes overproducing. In other words, their output is way more because they're, they're beg borrowing and stealing their, um, from, from everyone to try to leverage enough. Uh, they're not paying very good salaries. So they're not keeping good talent. And it becomes a huge perpetual problem. Yeah. Well, what we've done here at Beacon House on, the, in the, on that front is actually pretty interesting. You know, we, we have here um, a number of different, essentially different businesses that make up the organization. Uh-huh. And so now, working with the guys, we now have monthly reporting which produces seven different P&Ls. Seven, seven. Seven different P&Ls already. For each different line of service or business? For each different piece of the business. They have their own P&L, uh-huh. and there's a person uh, you know, on the org chart that's in charge of right. that segment of the business, right. and they're, they're given full P&L responsibility, and they have their own P&L. Fascinating. So we're now we're still fine-tuning that, but what's going to happen next is we will sign employment contracts with the head of each of those mm-hmm. seven components, and their bonus will be dependent upon them exceeding budget on their P and L. Now, there's some motivation right there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's going extraordinarily well uh, already because 
Um, I'd like, I'd, if I could climb myself and do it a bit faster, I would, but um, we're getting there pretty quickly. I've already got guys who are, you know, who understand that completely and are already going ballistic with running their organizations. Like Shane is a good example. Sure. On the Beacon House Exchange. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. We only started that store a year ago. It's we a thrift store, right? Thrift yeah. store. Uh-huh. We didn't know what to give them in terms of budget for a year because the first time we'd done it. Sure. So I said, okay, well, I'll give you 100000 a year as the revenue budget. They did two fifty in the first year. Did they really? Yeah, and they made over a hundred profit. Wow! The bottom line. So this year we've moved the budget to three hundred. They're already exceeding that on a month-to-month tracking basis. Right. Um, they're they're now talking about. They've already rented another facility in Long Beach, which is a warehouse sorting facility. Uh huh. And then the next step, which they'll in- initiate in the start of the next fiscal year will be the second store, which will be a higher-end store on 4th Street in Long Beach. Ah. So the lower-end stuff will come here to San Pedro, sorted through the sorting. Right. So the right. higher-end stuff will go to um, a higher-end store on 4th Street in Long Beach, which is you know, high-end retail there. And then, so that's the next step. And so that should get us to about, in within two, three years of, over half a million in sales from 100,000 start, which is a pretty good growth rate. It's a very good growth rate. Then the next step that the guy's running this has already come to me and talked about. He has his own separate P&L, by the way, so he knows, yeah. he tracks how he's doing, and his bonuses are already dependent on how he does. So uh-huh. he's eager to increase his salary, and uh, of course. he and his wife want to start a family and buy a house and all that. Of course. So yeah. that's all good. Uh, so he's now already identified his next level of expansion beyond the second store. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, I noticed that a lot of my customers who come in and buy from me every single month simply take what they buy and put it on eBay. Huh. So he now wants to put together his own eBay team. Oh, interesting. So that'll be the next step after that. And Cut so, off the middleman, right? Yeah, so yeah. we'll use some of the men to create, not completely, because we, sure. we don't want to kill that altogether, but right. we want to compete with it, and Why so not? we can keep some of that margin. Right, right. So he's going to start that as well. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I should tell our listeners that we're here at Beacon House, where, where Byrne is currently serving, and there it's a, a men's treatment program for chemical and alcohol dependency. So there's a, I think I have 105 beds, 110 yeah. beds, or something like that, but the men stay for up to two years. Three years. Three years. Yeah. And uh, there's a work component, and you're helping men get back on their feet and uh, back into the workforce with productive get him, skills. Get them and credentialed and educated. Get them credentialed, educated, and treated for their alcohol and drug uh, abuse. Right. And back to productive citizens again. So what I love about what you just talked about is how... So Beacon House here is not just relying on total donations or on the government, but it's also got a little service line of business, this thrift store oh, yeah. that can produce enough unrestricted extra income, revenue positive, to serve other things in the nonprofit operation of the Beacon House. Yeah, there's basically three pieces to the organization. There's the, there's the fee-for-service uh, government billing piece right. uh, through the county, SAPSI. Uh-huh. Um, they make up about a third of total revenues. I see. The next third of total revenues is what we call resident enterprises. That's all the businesses that we own. We run a whole lot of different businesses. And increasingly, what happens with those businesses is as they reach a certain size, we pull them out of resident enterprises, give them their own P&L. 
Oh, that's okay. how that happens. Uh-huh. You know? So I as soon see. as they hit, as soon as they uh, hit a certain uh, certain size, right. then they get their own P and L and their own staff. Right. Uh, other than that, they operate under the resident enterprises part with all the other businesses that haven't yet hit a certain size. Right. So the good part about it is, and so that, that's the second third of the total revenues, and the third part of the total revenues is the philanthropy. Traditional philanthropy. Traditional philanthropy. So what's happening now is we've already probably, for our level of evolution at this point, we've kind of maxed out our philanthropy. But we think we can double both the size of the the fee-for-service side on Mm -hmm. the governmental side and the resident enterprises over the next couple of years. Uh, So we're making the investment in more infrastructure to be able to do that once we've done that, that's going to drag along the donor base. In a, it's going to give us a new donor base. Yes, much right. more in the way of corporations right. and stuff who are very interested in seeing, um, you know, what we're doing with the guys because yeah. we're turning out guys who run businesses. They've run businesses. They've they, had they, experience in yep. the professional world. They they have successful businesses they've run. Yeah. And they've learned how to work together as a team. Maybe some of them have never learned that before and how to be part of something other than themselves. And they've learned full P&L responsibility as you well. You bet. And, and we've provided great service for the County of Los Angeles, turning guys who went, some of them, about 14, 15 times through the ChemDEP programs and they failed. And But here, right. they're having success. Yep. I call that a win, 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 win. Yeah, I think it's, it's a lot of fun because it's a lot of, you know, these guys come in and... The stories, the, the things that they've gone through and what they've endured in terms of homelessness and incarceration and, and just plain bad luck yeah. are, are, you know, heartbreaking when you listen to them. So fun to, uh, to engage and hear your learning in an out-of-court moratorium. That's fascinating. <laughs> we should have another conversation just about that sometime. But thank you for the work you're doing on behalf of the world and for Beacon House, and thank you for this conversation. It's all fun, Steve. Great. It's all fun. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Bern Galvin and myself, listening in to a variety of topics about turning around organizations and their performance If you enjoyed this podcast, I really would love it if you'd take a moment to leave me a rating. This helps others like yourself find us and join in this quest to develop the organizations we all belong to. And be sure to subscribe to Developing Organizations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast episodes. This podcast has been a production of Turning West, Inc. Thank you very much. See you next time.